Welcome to Enemies from War to Wisdom. Why do we need enemies? From intimate relationships to politics, tribalism, and community, we cannot seem to stop dehumanizing each other. Chronic conflicts in our families, societies, and nations seem inevitable. In this podcast, we analyze human hostilities from the most mundane to the most sophisticated. We apply psychology, psychoanalysis, art, spirituality, and relational theory in conversations about belonging and othering. Each program reaches for a fresh wisdom that shows us how to step back from creating enemies in our lives. I'm your host, Jill Abelock, a book artist, end-of-life doula and spiritual caregiver, and mindfulness meditation teacher. I'm here with my co-host, Polly Young-Eisendrath, who is a psychologist, Jungian analyst, author, and speaker. We approach our ideas each from our own worlds, but always from the spirit and teachings of Buddhism, of which we are lifelong practitioners. More than three centuries ago, in 1793, the great poet and artist William Blake said, Without contraries is no progression. Attraction and repulsion, reason and energy, love and hate are necessary to human existence. And then in 1916, the eminent psychoanalyst Carl Jung wrote as though he were speaking to us today. The present shows with appalling clarity how little able people are to let the other man's argument count. Although this capacity is a fundamental and indispensable condition for any human community. In this moment, it seems as if we are persuaded of our own moral superiority in ways that can lead to not only our intolerance of others' views and opinions, but to the impoverishment of our own. Today's politics, social media, and popular memes enthrone self-righteousness and moral superiority as we rush to tear down anyone's perspective that is different from our own cherished views. As many of us may now discredit systems of thought and artistic expression from earlier cultures and periods of time. In this podcast, we ask the question, how are we cheated by our own self-righteousness and what can we do about it? Joining us today is Eleanor Johnson, a videographer and artist with Emma Troop, an experimental theater group in New York City, and former co-host of this podcast. Welcome, Eleanor. It's great to be here. Wonderful, and welcome, Polly. Thank you, Jill. This is great. I'm, I'm so glad that we're talking about this topic because it is one that has been on my mind a great deal over a long period of time, actually. Uh, a long period being, say, the last three years or so. Um, but what, what really kind of formulates it for me more than anything is the way in which uh, something about our period of time seems to be kind of continuing criticism of almost all other periods of time. Now, on one hand, you could say, well, there might be something good in that. We've changed practices of marriage. We've changed practices of equality, social justice, um, environmental protection, various things that in this period of time, we seem to have formulated in a new way, in a way that 
apparently takes into account something that we might call justice or fairness, or it also may seem to take into account the desire of people to tell their own stories and to get their own history out there. So that might be all to the good. But at the same time, as we've done that, in, in my experience at least, and this would be an experience that stretches from doing psychotherapy with individuals, dialogue therapy with couples, teaching in the public domain, and lecturing and teaching and consulting at universities. So it's a kind of wide span from working with people in my consulting room to working with the general public. What I see and what really concerns me is, is a feeling that often gets expressed that we are somehow on the top of the heap in figuring out the problems of the world, that we've arrived at a point that is somehow above all of the other points that people have arrived at for eons of time. And I find that that actually is a kind of immodesty. There's, there's a, a kind of feeling of superiority as though we know more than Homo sapiens have ever known, and that we need to tear down statues, take down portraits, eliminate the stories of people that we think have harmed and hurt others. And there's, there's never been that kind of movement, as far as I know, except in revolutions, some of which have gone very badly, like the Chinese Cultural Revolution, where a lot of art and history was torn down and destroyed. So I get concerned about this feeling that what we are doing in this period of time, and when I say we here, I actually do mean kind of privileged North Americans because I know that a lot of our concerns in you know North America among educated people aren't necessarily replicated by people on other continents in other cultures. But a lot of our concerns that seem to have to do with fairness, justice, environmental justice, identity, gender, lots of these concerns, I believe are concerns that are, yes, new in certain ways, revolutionary in certain ways, but I don't know that they're superior to everything that has happened thus far in human history, including all of the high cultures, China, Greece, for example, very high cultures lasted much longer than North America has been in existence. So I'm concerned about and think about myself, how do we come up with a framework for what we're doing that doesn't have as an implication that we know the best and are doing the best? So, you know, that's that's kind of a a long sort of intro on this, but I'd like to think about and talk about this from the point of view of where we locate ourselves, the three of us, in regard to what you might call history, whether it's personal history or cultural history or social history, and also the ways in which we influence other people who are in the public domain, who are talking about these topics of justice, gender, 
identity, oppression, and so on. So, so I mean, I'm, I'm kind of putting it out on the table. I know that from my point of view, I will link some of this to projection and projective identification. Mm-hmm. I will link it also to the ways that people promote themselves and protect themselves. That's where I go always on these podcasts. But I'd like to hear from you guys where this seems to strike you as important or interesting or, you know, how you see it, this, this issue of where we are in this moment of culture and history that seems to allow us to think of ourselves as morally superior, as though we're better than the people that have come before. I wonder that that sense of superiority, that sense of being at the apex of human knowledge, of culture, of history, is really exclusive to this moment in history, or if it actually hasn't been characteristic of any given moment in human history. I think if you were to wind back the clock to just pick a date, any other time in history, except maybe during major wars, and even then there's a sense of moral superiority about the importance of that war, but I think that if you were to look at any particular moment in human history, the majority of people would say, we are at our apex at this time. We, we, and that's not to exclude the possibility that can't get better, but things are the best they've ever been. And I, don't, I, I wonder that that's really exclusive to this moment in time. Well, what I'd like to say about that is that I believe in those other periods, and I've certainly you know, seen many, many quoted things on these, uh, you know, I mean, I can't really think at at this moment of the exact kind of admonition or whatever that was made. But, you know, I I know there is um, a quote by, I think it might be Freud, about standing on the shoulder of giants. And I think in any other period of time, even though somebody might have arrived at the apex they weren't chopping the others down completely that were under them. In other words, they saw themselves as building on something that had become had come before, except mm-hmm. at times of revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, but that even in, say, the American Revolution, I don't think there was a desire to do, do away with British culture or undermine entirely the cultural memes that were brought to North America by the people who were leaving mm-hmm. uh, England. I think they were thinking they were they were improving those or you know building on them or whatever, and it's as though right now again in this little niche that I'm in of North American culture, there is some kind of feeling that we don't need everything that came before that that was a kind of a lot of patriarchal bullshit, and now we're inventing something that's all new and that doesn't need a past, and particularly a patriarchal past, Mm -hmm. that we should get rid of that, you know, diss it, or tear it down, or even take it down and break it up. I don't think that was true of the other kinds of points of accomplishment Mm -hmm. in cultures that have come before. And even in my own lifetime, I mean, you know, I'm a baby boomer, and of course, there was the saying, never trust anyone over 30, that I, it wasn't as though I grew up with that saying, but I came into my maturity with that saying. 
But honestly, I never imagined that it meant don't listen to anybody over 30 because I had elders, I had mentors, I had teachers, and they actually thought differently from me, but I knew I was on their shoulders. I knew I hadn't invented the world. I knew I didn't have a totally new vision that I needed to tear theirs down. And so it's that um, idea of almost to me, like we're at this moment where when I hear, when I hear particularly, uh, you know, young people that I admire, political activists that I admire, and people that I think have some important things to say, it's as though they're not adding to, but they're inventing and that they feel that they have to destroy or dismiss or, as I said, take down everything that came before. There's there's a kind of intolerance. I mean, I don't think any of us have ever really experienced what we're experiencing today in this culture. But I've thought about having placed myself in history and working at a pattern level in my work, in my film work, that there's been, for a long time, I've been, I've been aware that there's been a loss of memory. There's been a forgetting. And now it's gotten to the point where there's such an intolerance of difference and a, a, a kind of suppression that's happening in, in America in a way that I've never experienced in my life before, but I have watched it through history over and over again. Um, and I think that's a very dangerous signal. Well, so you I watched think it, which history so, are, you th- are you thinking of when you said over and over again? Well, I mean, thought, I'm thinking of the whole of Western civilization. I mean, you, you, the and, suppressing thing? Well, I mean, there are times throughout all of our history that we've had that kind of suppression. But right now, because everything is so advanced and we have so much more knowledge and technology, it's like everything is clashing, you mm. know? And so there's a, there's a, we're all experiencing this kind of, chaos and we're all getting you know knocked off our rails in a sense because it's like we're up against this this disowning constantly in society and I and I also think there's a huge you know propaganda bubble that also just focuses on that kind of negativity and I do find among the young and I mm-hmm. spent a lot of time among young professionals in my field as an artist and in film and video and stuff is that they want to have access to the memory that's being lost. They want to remember. So I don't find that particularly. I I find more the disavowal. I mean, I think that's there, but I think the other is there as well. I wonder if it's, it's kind of a matter of scale. I think if you look at any time in history that feels revolutionary, whether it's the Revolutionary War in the U.S., where it's true that, that they weren't necessarily throwing out British culture wholesale. They didn't try and adopt another culture like Native American culture. Right. They, they owned who they were and what their background was, but they were, they were sti- there was still a tearing down and there was still, there was a disavowing, I think, culturally of things that were British. I think, so if you're looking at a political movement like that, or if you're looking at um, social revolutions, you know, don't trust anybody over 30, or don't trust the establishment, right? Mm-hmm. Anything that was establishment was bad. So that was, right. a, that was a, a cultural revolution. I think during in the past, during revolutionary times, 
that was when you had the disavowing because people were trying to break down what had existed to change things or break out of what existed. I think the difference now is because of the the intensity of of social media yeah. and the interconnectedness that's gotten magnified. Right. So I think that the difference between now and past times in history is that that kind of disavowing that happened particularly during revolutionary times seems to be happening happening all the time now because that that pushback is is getting magnified and reiterated and reinforced. Well, maybe the thing is technology. I mean, as you two were talking, I was thinking, I do think it's the internet Mm -hmm. that makes this distinctive in this period because, you know, at any other period and certainly during, um, you know, the protest period that I came to maturity in, which was, you know, anti-Vietnam, civil rights and so on, I was responding to local groups that were around me. I wasn't hearing from the whole world. Like we're now we'll hear what's going on in China, what's going on in Africa. And you can hear that every day, but you're not actually there. So what you're doing is you're getting bits and pieces of information and and you're sort of sorting them into your own subjective snow globe. Mm -hmm. And so you say, oh, this means this or that means that. And immediately then you say, oh, well, if you've got this sense of moral superiority, oh, well, I know what all that means and I'm on this side of it. Uh, I do think there is something distinctive about the, this sort of sense of I know what's going on and I know exactly what it means instead of, huh, that's interesting. I'd never heard that before. I wonder what it means. Right. I think the irony with with the amount of media, the amount of information that's available to us is that people tend to tune into and focus on media sources that reinforce their point of view. That that there I mean there's no such thing as neutrality. That's Everything right. is balanced. Right. So we're not going to pretend that that's anything right. was ever neutral because everything right. is always balanced. However, there's the, what part of what the internet to me has created also is is an echo chamber. Same yes. thing with cable television. Yes. You turn on the news station that best reflects your internal views and reviles the views of others. That's right. That's right. And that that echo chamber effect has, I think, intensified the t- natural tribalism. Yes. As we were talking about earlier. Tribalism is natural to everyone. Humans in groups promote and protect themselves everywhere. There is no place you can go where that is not happening. And then if you have an internet, you have many, many choices for finding your tribe. You know, I mean, to use a kind of strange example, but for me, it's an interesting one. When people practiced sadomasochism previously, they were doing it in secret. In tiny little groups, they had a file cabinet or something that they were where they kept their materials. Now it's a huge movement on the internet, and it, that has taken it to a whole different thing. It's like a corporation now. Everything's you know, it's like out. then yeah. you have to have then if you're going to practice that, you have to have the right outfits, you have to have the right ID, and you have to do the way that it's done, or you're not in the tribe. 
And again, I, I chose a very sort of strange example of it. I see this happening in spiritual groups. I see this happening in, in political groups and also simply in these little pockets of identification. It's like the tribal aspects have increased not decreased as a result it been magnified as a result of all of this this information coming across that you can yeah. you can sort out really you can look you can google your own little niche and find a whole lot of media that go with your niche and then you can identify with that really quickly not knowing really anything you know you've never even done that or been there but you've now decided that this is the kind of person you are. I don't think that existed before. I think, I think even during revolutions, things were happening by word of mouth and slowly. And so if something new came in, it might come in in a city or a place where there was a gathering of people, and it would take a long time for it to filter right, out yes. to the others. And during that time, there was a thoughtful process. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, well, we, we might want to change this, but not that. And where I think we're at a different point right now is that I, I, I do get concerned that there's a feeling somehow that we can tear down or tear up everything that has been valuable as a foundation right. to our society and our practices and that we're better off for doing that. Right. You know? I mean, I find it very, very traumatic in my own life right now um, to see almost all the values that I hold as an American being devalued. I mean, in, or being questioned and where I've started to, you know, think about tribe, belonging to a tribe, just to be able to calm down at times because there's so much divisiveness and anger and intolerance, you know, and it's just really, I've never encountered anything like it in my life before. And I think it's very, very serious. Well, we're, you know, what's one thing that I did oh. think of too when we were talking about, you know, just again on a pattern level in terms of when things go into real crisis through time, we have to also remember that through history, whenever that kind of dynamic happened, you would just wipe out a race. You would just destroy people. You would just kill them. You'd get rid of them. You, there was no, you know, no discussion, no conscious discussion on, I mean, they just destroyed people. You know, and, in a sense, though, I think we do that now. And I think we do it in way, a very different, different way. way. Because yeah. there's a term that I'm only marginally familiar with. It's called ghosting, where you, right, basically, yes. you basically take other and they don't exist for you. Right. And I think with the, with the specialized sort of a networks, shunning. that's yeah. right. So with specialized networks and yeah. with being able to filter the, inf the information that you're getting, right, to be tailored to what you already believe, right. you're essentially ghosting people who don't hold the same opinions that you That's right. Or they That's talk right. about canceling The now. cancel culture. The, yeah. the young you. will That's, go in and just cancel, yeah. and then right. they, w they won't. There's no eye contact. They just completely destroy you. Right. Well, it's a shunning. It's a shunning, but it's a shunning at a level that I think Very is more... It, well, it's more widespread. It's yeah. like shunning used to be rare, you know, and I mean, at least in my period of time living here. Um, and now I find that when people do the calling out and canceling, the calling out is to call out your faults, right. to call out your failings from that person's point of view. You've right. used the wrong right. word, right. you've said the thing wrong, but it's not as though there's an investigation. Yeah. Like, well, what do you mean by that? Right. It's more like, nope, you said that, 
I'm not listening. I'm done with you. Yeah, I'm done with you. And so then it's like, I'm going to call you out and then I'm going to cancel you. Right. And, right. you know, I was very... It's a kind of death. It's, it is. It is. It's, it's kind of a, and it's a kind of a wiping out of the meaning yeah. of yes. the other person. Yeah. And I was very encouraged when I heard Obama say, you know, li- listen, you know, calling out and canceling is yeah. not social activism, folks. Right. That right. is not social activism. But then, practically the next day, when I started Googling around about his speech, there were lots of young people, and particularly when I read The Guardian, you know, these were headlines in The Guardian, that this was irrelevant because it was a baby boomer statement. He's just a boomer. He doesn't know what he's talking about. So he had like one day, one day of being able to say this in a way that had impact, and then the next day, it was already emptied out by right. he's a boomer. So again, that takes this sort of attitude of moral superiority. It's like, I know better than Obama because I know he's a boomer and the boomers don't really understand anything that's happened here. So, you know, it's that kind of quick position of moral superiority that I think is more powerful than the anger and hatred. I mean, there's a lot of anger and hatred around, but this idea of believing that you know exactly what well, is you know true. Better. You know Which, better. And yeah. I think, I, I actually think that, again, generational superiority is not anything that's new. No. Every generation thinks that they are better than their parents. Right. Every generation thinks that they know more than their parents. I, it's part, that's That's part of human culture. Part of human culture. However, you mature out of that, right? right? So that's a very adolescent, teenage, maybe even young adult attitude. Or even four-year-old, four to six-year-old is when it's really strong. (laughs) Right. But then, then it then it then it reasserts during during the adolescent and teen years when 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 kids are differentiating. Right. 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 And preparing to be independent adults, right. so that differentiation is is a kind of part of that is a kind of negation and a kind of right. um, superiority. Well, yeah, you're just my mom. What do you know? Right. You, right. Know, you don't understand the world today. Right. You don't know anything. So, however, the idea is that you hold that you you mature, you grow, That's you right. become an independent person, and then in your independence, you mature to recognize that what came before you is incredibly important. Right, and also you become grateful for right. that. You right. become right. grateful that right. there was a before. Right. You know, and that is that is absent, and I think it's not just the teenagers who are the calling out people. They're people in their 30s and 40s. And, you know, the, the whole thing with the Obama statement that was that was really concerning to me is this is the first African-American president of the United States. He's making a serious statement, and he had about one day to make it, and then it was called out, and I didn't really see much reference to it after that, Mm -hmm. because it was canceled, and it was all based on the idea he doesn't know what he's talking about, because he's a baby boomer, and that, and you know, I'm using that again as an, it's it's sort of like, from my, from my point of view, I hear that kind of things hundreds of times, but it was just the idea that Obama was speaking out and I was feeling this relief. 
oh, he's going to have influence now well, it did on seed. young people. It did seed. It did seed. It went out. But it again, didn't the seem kind to of, hold. It's hard for us to really know, you know, I mean, because, again, the way that the media will go in and, you know, wipe something out or take, you know, take take its attention off of something very important or just bring in a whole other uh, reference point. But I think that was a that was a very powerful moment when he spoke in that way. And I do feel that that it went out and, and, and you know, it was seated. I mean, don't we, you know, we don't have any way to, to judge it, but I mean... Well, you would, I, I would have expected that maybe over the next couple of months after that, you would have heard Obama in conversation with other people about it, that he would have been invited here and there to talk to activists and so on. And there hasn't been a follow-up like that. It's as though you it happened it, yeah. and it's gone, yeah. you know. And that's, again, part of the problem, if you believe... You take, you're taking a, a, a superior position. You don't need the details from the other side. And, you know, to, to take a step back and, and realize that, that Blake wrote those comments right after the French Revolution. Right. So what was happening is that he had just seen the effects of a revolution. And what he was trying to say is, look, now we need to rebuild from both sides. We don't want to just destroy French culture and everything that it has been up until now. We need to bring the other side in, and we want to build those two sides together. And as we've talked about it on the podcast many times, like in the art of war, as soon as you defeat your enemy, your enemy becomes your companion. You need that other side. So you don't go off in a one-sided way. And that's really what Blake was talking about. And then Jung, if you if you read that quote in whole, he says, if you cannot tolerate those voices and those positions that are different from your own, you can't tolerate your inner voices. You will just identify with one side. I mean, I think the uh, the upside of all of this also is that, you know, again, and I, I'll refer, because I, I feel this so strongly, I feel that so much is blocked in terms of general media, but all throughout not only this country, but the world right now are all of these other very, very holistic and very important activities that are going on that aren't being picked up by general media. The podcasts that are happening, Mm -hmm. the way podcasting has become a way of life for so many people now, or Obama continues doing the good work he's doing, we don't hear about it. It's not, they're not talking about it in the press, but they're talking about it in other places. But again, for those of us who keep tabs on that, we know about it, but the general public won't know about it. But there's a, there's a kind of blanketing that's happening with the media that's very, very dangerous, very dangerous. But there's also, on a grassroots level, there's so much positivity happening, you know, and, and, and counteracting all of this. And, and uh, sometimes I wish I just had the time where I could, I could do a podcast with just all the good news. Mm. You know of the of of what's happening because in my life in urban centers, I deal. I'm 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 on site with so many things that are happening. That's just, it's just thrilling. Including for those of us baby boomers of our generation that carry so much more history and awareness through the way that we've lived our lives and stuff. And and a lot of the young are very hungry to know more about that. Not to just dismiss it like you're old timers or it's old stuff or whatever. But I I I find that in my dailiness. I mean, I live it in my dailiness, and that gives me a lot of hope. Um, well, you know, I, I mean, I'm not without hope at all, but I, I also think we're at a serious moment in I terms do too. of 
I in, do too. In terms of the possibilities for a more totalitarian approach to yes, things. Yes, I agree. And I think that totalitarianism is not coming from one side or the other politically. No. I think it's coming from a reactivity yeah. in the general sort of public domain that doesn't allow for a true dialogue mm-hmm. about things that we disagree right. about. And the, you know, as we talked about projective identification in the last podcast, the problem with projective identification, it's very easy to locate anything that you disagree with and don't like into another person or another tribe. And then you want to treat them like the enemy. And then you believe that your whole actual purpose is to defeat them or destroy them. And that is when things become really problematic for cultures and for individuals because there's no recognition that you need the other side. You cannot destroy the other side or you're just left with one-sidedness. One-sidedness is always going to be ego. It's just all ego. It's like, this is the way I see it. This is the way I experience this. And it's it's ego ego and it's idealized. Yes, yes, exactly. And then that can become your whole purpose for being is to fight for the things that you think are right, that you believe are true. The extremists. That that you don't, you know, and, and I can see in my own life that when I began as a feminist, when I was in my late 20s, because before that, I was dubious about feminism. I, I thought it might be just a bunch of middle-class women complaining. I mean, I was a working-class person. I actually didn't ever think that I was going to be taken care of by anybody. I didn't think that someone else was going to earn a living for me and a whole bunch of things. And so when I when I read Betty Friedan, the first time I read it, I was like, eh, I don't know. It, was, it wasn't until I met Shirley Chisholm, who was a black woman running for president, who said, look, it's not just about race. It's about gender, too. But in building up that framework of feminism, I was never destroying patriarchy. Right. I knew that patriarchy was allowing me to have a free voice. And that what I was coming into was some new iteration, I thought, in which patriarchy was going to open up for other voices. But I never thought, man, that was just a bad thing. I realized that much, much, much civilization, society, and so on developed by a hierarchy as unfair as it was to a lot of people. It produced a lot of things that brought me to the point where I could understand what it meant to have an individual voice. And you could support a black woman to be president. Be president, yeah. Yeah. But I realized there was a foundation for that. It didn't get created out of thin air. Right. It wasn't because one day somebody stood up and said, oh, women should have a free voice. Right. Or because, because because everyone who represented the patriarchy was suddenly eliminated. That's right. Or that right. they were all bad or right. that, you know, or that all of right. the men up until that point were just, you know, somehow demanding that they be in power. I I could see even, you know, in my early feminist days that there were different movements that had happened from the beginning of culture. And, of course, at that point, I thought the Sumerians were the beginning of culture. Now I realize it's way, way before that. But where there were men who were Mm open-minded 
to the concerns and cares of the people that were not in their position. And they were often the people that were the most educated. And they were the people at the top of the heap. And they were trying to think about, how does this work? So, you know, I didn't think we were going to reject everything. Right. And then we were going to, we were going to then put down everybody that came before. I thought we were going to build and build on and stand yeah. on shoulders and so on. And now it seems like we've arrived at a point that there is a great sort of desire to, to call out and to cancel a lot of powerful men that came before us. Right. And it, and it happens even it happens even in the in situations where people hold the best of intentions. I met somebody who was part of a spiritual community where there was sexual scandal at the top and who despite being nurtured by the people who they had immediate contact with was so disillusioned with the scandal at the top that they left the community and then felt bereft right felt bereft of community and that's a it's a that's a really good example to me of what happens when you hold something in a way that is so idealized that it cannot tolerate imperfection. That's right. That's right. And that's, that's a, right. to me, that's also a part of self-righteousness and moral superiority. Right. Is that, yes, there's, yes. that if it's not perfect, if it's mm-hmm. not ideal, then it's not worthwhile. And another piece of the problem with that is then people become delusional about their own perfection or that's the perfection exactly. of their own ideals. That's exactly right. Yeah, the perfection of your ideals is something to be very dubious about always. To think you know exactly what solutions are. You know, that's, uh, to me, one of the biggest mistakes because this is, as we say many times here in the podcast, this is samsara. This is the world of life and death. And so from the moment you come here, from the moment even when you're conceived to come here, you enter into an environment that's not perfectible. It's right. not perfectible. Right. You it's are not, not only not perfect, it's not perfectible. It's not perfectible. That's right. So any social movement, any cultural movement, what it really must have is a humane value that everyone would survive and exist and have a place and a point of view and that no one knows exactly how to do that. That's why we have to work together and we need elders. We need the people that have been here before who've been working on these same problems. It's not like we can invent something that works perfectly well. And, you know, for and us. And we need people who think differently than we do. Yes, we need you can't even who think. Think differently than you we do. You can't think and yourself. Behave differently it. than yes, we do. Yes, exactly. That's what I thought America was. <laughs> well. You know, or the experiment with democracy. I mean, all a, of yeah, that is it's being a, it's, is being so challenged. Or you know, the um, avoidance of anything that has to do with vulnerability or denial of one's own inadequacy. All of those things. It's not. It, there's so much information and in being able to work with the with the the wisdom that's in our vulnerability. And and we've just you know we're just shut down to that right now. I mean, there's like conscious education is like out the window. Well, I think that... I mean, this is, in a sense, I mean, we're right. bringing in a worldview, we're bringing in, you know, a, another understanding, we're putting out another kind of call. 
but yeah, it's a, it's a very tricky time right now. Well, the, the conscious education, I think, does depend on modesty. And if you take a position that's highly idealized and you believe it's superior, then you really don't have much chance to go through that differentiation and be able to feel grateful and to be able to feel like you're standing on others' shoulders. You know, it's as though you feel like you have to keep inventing something new constantly, which is impossible. Right. Um, Well, and it also reminds me of the Zen parable where... The master tells the student to hold out his teacup and just starts pouring. And the tea just spills over and spills over and spills over. And the lesson is you can't fill a cup that's already full. That's right. right? That's right. Exactly. And so that's a perfect place to stop because I think that's that idea of moral superiority is that your cup is full and you don't have a gap and you don't need something that you don't know about. Mm. And that probably is the very key thing, that if we proceed with that modesty, that we need the other side. And the other side will always be the thing that you really are annoyed by. It is never the other side that you want to include. Right. You know, it's the other side that is truly the other side, because that's what's tapping in to your own unconscious meanings. And so when people say, oh, you know, I want to include the refugees and I want to include the minorities and I want to include the people at the bottom of the totem pole, that's great. That's conscious. Who are the people that you don't like? Right. The people you really disagree with, right. those are the ones you need to include in your conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's that's great. Wonderful. Well, thank you well, both thank you. so much. <laughs> yeah. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Eleanor, for joining us. So good to see you here in Vermont. And thank you, Polly. Thank you, Jill. Thank, thank you, Eleanor. Jill. <laughs> thank you, Polly. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. To continue the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our Patreon page supports Real Dialogue for Opposing Sides live events. Please visit it at www.patreon.com forward slash Real Dialogue, all one word. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. Enemies from War to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.